Well, welcome to course number two in the NET series. This course is called Disciples of the Lord Jesus. And this session one, this course, is entitled Why Disciples? Now, the pivotal point of all history is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of history is centered around the crucifixion and the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have no power. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, he gathered his apostles again and his disciples again, and he instructed them of many things that were about to happen. During that time, he declared to them in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, that all authority had been given unto him in heaven and in earth. Now, not since God Almighty had delegated authority to man in the garden, had all authority in heaven and in earth been in one place. But once Jesus was raised from the dead, the Father gave him authority from heaven, and he, as the Son of Man, had removed all authority on earth into his hand. So all was delivered to him by the Father. And he said, because of this, go... Therefore, make disciples, the Great Commission. Because Jesus has all authority, we make disciples. That's our job. Now, all disciples must first be Christian, but not all Christians will choose to be disciples. Historically, probably few have chosen to be disciples, but that has not always been the case, nor will it always be the case. More and more are wanting to go beyond just the basic coming into the kingdom, coming into the family by the new birth, and then remaining as babes, waiting, so to speak, for the Lord. But rather to grow up in all things under the head who is Christ Jesus. To be discipled is to be disciplined to the teachings of the Master. We are called to become disciples and then to go and make disciples. We can't give what we don't have. We can't help others to become something that we haven't attained. And yet the goal of the Great Commission, one of the goals was to make disciples of the nations. Why should we become disciples? One of the reasons Jesus taught us was in John 15, 16, he said that he chose them and he appointed them so that they would go and they would bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. Not only that we'd have fruit, but that it would be lasting fruit. Discipleship puts us in a position where those things which we do bear fruit now and in eternity. By our patience, we possess our souls. With patience, we see our fruit grow and abound. Without that endurance, we'll not see the end result of the things which we plant. The word never goes out void, and yet at the same time, we may not see the fruit of it if we don't endure. He wants us to have fruit that takes work, and fruit that will remain that takes work and wisdom, and that takes discipleship. Now, in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, 
there's a series of three things that Jesus said that he did in order to gather uh, his apostles to him and the reasons that he gathered them to him. To me, this is really foundational to what we should be doing in light of making disciples. And it says, he appointed the twelve, and the first reason that he gives is that they might be with him. Secondly, and that he might send them out to preach. And thirdly, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Now, I can understand that order in light of the first thing being his desire that the disciples would be with him. And then he appointed these specific disciples as the ones that should be closest to him, the ones that he called, appointed, ordained, whatever word you want to use. They were number one, first and foremost, to be with him. Now, this is something that we should emulate as we become discipled and disciple others. Our first and our primary call is to be with the Lord Jesus. If we're not saved, then we need to become saved so that we can be with Him. Once we are saved, then there's a process of growing closer to Him and growing up in the things of the Lord and becoming mature as children of the Lord and growing up to be more mature sons. I can understand that in light of the very first thing that's needed in relationship. But the second thing is that he would send them out to preach. It seems to me that it would be better to give authority first and then send them out. And yet at the same time, we see this in other places too. I think of Luke chapter 9, where he called out the 12 and he sent them out. And in Luke chapter 10, he got the 70 and he sent them out. And in Luke chapter 11, they all came back with great Stories of victory. Tremendous things had happened. Miracles. Demons cast out in the name of Jesus. And then when they all sat down, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. You'd think he would have taught them how to pray before he sent them out. Now we know he delegated some authority to them. And he said, you go cast them out in my name. In other words, under my authority, you go out. And I think this is something we need to understand in light of discipleship. That as we begin to go out, we go out in the name of the person that we're assigned to learn from. We're under their covering. We're under their authority. And because we are, we see results that we would not see had we gone out on our own. Had we sent ourselves out. And so when they went out, they saw tremendous things. Now, they obviously had some authority in operation. He gave them that authority. And it was for those particular sendings. Obviously, they weren't sent one time, and that was it. And we don't have one sending in our life. Some people, I guess, don't have any. And that's a shame. Because we do need to be assigned. We need to be equipped, trained up, and sent out to use what we've learned. But then we need to come back for refreshers, for increased uh, learning and understanding and impartation. And what comes to us from one another when we come back and hear of the victories that others have, have had? We grow in faith, don't we? But... We go in many directions, but when we come back with the stories of victory, all faith is increased. It's multiplied, not just added to, but multiplied.
So he got them with him first and foremost. And he, while they were with him, they learned and they received. They were polished and they were sent out time and again and they had victories. And as they proved themselves, they were also delegated authority. We see that with Jesus himself. It wasn't until he had totally proven himself to have fulfilled his calling on the cross that then he was raised from the dead and all authority in heaven and earth was given unto him. So even the Father sent Jesus and then later gave him all authority. So it's the same process with us. We come to him, remain with him. We're set out utilizing what we have received, and then we're given authority. There's a multiplication, I think, that happens when we go out under another's authority to begin with and prove ourselves with that covering, with that grace, with that protection that comes from permission. Does that mean we can't go out and learn on our own? Certainly not. But if we go out with the permission, we have the protection. Amen. With the blessing comes an added blessing. I'd like to look at the Lord's Prayer if we could. I'd like to look at it in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Now when they came back, remember they asked him, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples how to pray. And Jesus said to him, look, don't do like the Pharisees do. Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Now, one thing about discipleship, it is repetition. One thing it should not be is vain repetition. Vain means wasted, empty. They say we don't learn something until we've heard it six times. Sometimes it's more for some of us, <laughs> we go out and do it. We learn it. We see it done. We learn it. We have to do it again. We have to see it again. We have to hear it again. We have to read it again. But by repetition, it sinks in. By use, we become polished. Well, not vain repetitions. And then he says, your father already knows what you need. I used to wonder, well, if God already knows what I need, then why should I pray? Well, obviously I need to pray because Jesus says to pray. The Word of God is very clear that we should pray. But if He already knows, then why do we need to pray? Obviously, there are other reasons that we need to pray than just to inform God of our needs. It is good to inform Him and let Him know of our needs, but it does us more good in that we're letting Him know, but we are operating under authority as we do that because Jesus said to do it. So when we do it, we're walking out in obedience and therefore the doors open for the answers of prayer. Now there is a spiritual battle that goes on. There is an enemy who wants to stop God's will from being done on earth. That includes your prayers and mine being answered on earth. Therefore, we are called of God to participate in the process of bringing authority from heaven in light of God's action on earth. We are called to participate in that as fellow laborers with the Lord. 
by becoming disciples, we put ourselves in the position of learning the process of releasing God's grace in the earth. So he says, don't just waste your time. Don't be vain. Don't be empty. Don't be useless in your words. In other words, let your words be full. Let them be powerful. Let them be strategic. Let them be uh, pointed to where God would have them to be pointed. Then he gives this example. In this manner, therefore pray. Okay? Therefore, because we don't want vain repetitions, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he goes right into teaching on forgiveness. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now Jesus was a rabbi, meaning he was a teacher. Rabbis taught. One way they taught was to bring subjects in light of sentences that could then later be expounded upon. And I believe that's what Jesus did with the Lord's Prayer. This is not only just a prayer that we can pray, and it's a wonderful prayer, but there's actually seven different subjects within this prayer that we can take and expound upon. And each time we pray it, it can be different. And the Spirit can inspire us under each one of those sections. It begins and it ends with praise. We come into his gates with thanksgiving, we enter his courts with praise. So this is all wrapped up in the Lord's Prayer here. The first subject that I see, our Father in heaven. So within that we have, number one, he doesn't say my Father. It doesn't say your Father. It's our Father. Right there you have a family with Father God as a head. Already we have corporate unity spoken of and implied right there. Our Father in heaven. So we understand already it's a, it's a heavenly kingdom that we're speaking about. It's a heavenly Father that we're speaking to. Already we are getting our eyes as we begin to pray off of earth and on to heaven. Our reward should be in heaven. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that we need will be added unto us. Our Father who is in heaven. Our heavenly Father. We could spend quite a bit of time just on that subject and what's implied in those few words. Secondly, hallowed, holy be your name. Sanctified is your name. Set apart is your name. What is in his name? The power of, all, of God is in the name of Jesus. What is in the name? The power, the protection, the release, salvation, grace is in the name of God. Jehovah, God in relation to his people. All the various names of God, which we won't go into right now, but the redemptive names of God. Holy, they're all sanctified 
Each one of them signifies one of God's natures towards his people or towards his creation or as creator. Holy is your name. The third one I see. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are sons of man. We are descendants of Adam. We have authority on earth, even in our soul. Every man that's alive on earth has some authority on earth. Because he's a descendant of Adam, he has inherited something from his earthly ancestor, his earthly father, Adam. When we become Christian, we submit that to our heavenly call. We have changed kingdoms. We're on the earth, but we're of his kingdom. So now we use our authority, which is inherited through our soul, man, to bring his kingdom to earth. Then we walk in supernatural authority. So when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying the will of God down literally to earth. We're bringing into this world with all the sin and all the sickness, light. We're taking it out from the bushel and we're setting it up. We're taking that city and setting it up on a hill where no man can miss it. It can't be hid. And you can go on and pray as the Spirit inspires you. Number four, give us this day our daily bread. This is not just talking about food to eat. Because life is so much more than food, Jesus taught us. But the daily bread, that manna that fed them in the wilderness, that daily manna, manna meaning what is it? <laughs> and so every day we say, okay, Lord, what is it today? What is it that you want to feed me with today? Give me today my daily bread. Give me my manna that I may flourish in the spirit, that I would have all my needs met spiritual, mental, physical. Give me that daily bread. When they were in the wilderness, they had to go out and gather their manna. And whatever they gathered, it was enough. Some gathered much, some gathered little, but it was always enough for that day. We also, some days we need a little, some days we need a lot. But if we understand our daily bread is always enough, but we have to go get it. Jesus is teaching them how to go get it from the Father. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He says in 15, he calls it trespasses. In other words, when a brother trespasses against us, we need to forgive that brother. If he does it seven times in a day, if he comes back, we forgive him again and again and again. We forgive others. And God will also forgive ours. Now, we know that when we confess Jesus as Lord, our sins were washed away. All our trespasses were gone. But what about from that point on? In other words, this is talking about life. It's talking about as we walk in this Christian life, being disciples of the Lord Jesus. If we choose not to forgive others, then the fruit in our lives is that we will walk in unforgiveness. Is forgiveness always available to us from the Father? Yes. How do we receive it? We have to go and accept it. And he says, if we'll forgive others, we'll walk in forgiveness ourselves. 
It's generally only when we forget what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ that we don't forgive others. When we remember what he did for us on the cross, it's much easier for us to forgive others and walk in grace and forgiveness. Forgiveness really is a release to move on for both parties. You know, the Lord Jesus has extended forgiveness to all on earth. He carried all our sins, not just yours, not just mine, and not just those that lived before him, but everyone who lived before him and everyone that lived after. He bore our burden, but then he extended forgiveness to us. That released him from any burden. However, not everyone has accepted that forgiveness, so not every party has been released from the sin. We must release through forgiveness. We also must release by accepting forgiveness. If we won't release others through forgiveness, however, there's at least one party that's always bound. Number six, and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Now, he was speaking from experience because the day that the Spirit came down on him like, upon him like a dove, the first directive of the Holy Spirit was to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. So he understood what it was to be tested. He also understood what it was to be tried like we are and yet come through without sin. But he also says right there to pray not to be led into temptation. Jesus taught us that sufficient under the day is the evil thereof. We don't need to go looking for it. If we'll pray, don't lead us into temptation and deliver us from the evil one, we will know that any test or trial that comes, there will always be a way out. That's a promise that we've been given. There is a way out for us if we'll pray that. It doesn't promise that if we willingly go in to sin, if we willingly go into places and tempt God by putting ourselves at risk, there's no guarantee we're going to get out unscathed. But when we pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one, that will come to pass. And as we pray those things, God will bring up in our spirit directives, information, scriptures, things that we'll need in that day to go through the day and not give in to temptation and not lose a single battle to the evil one. And then finally, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Praise unto heaven. The kingdom, the power, and all the glory belongs to God. We need to remember that. Pride was the cause of the fall of Lucifer, who was given so much grace. And that pride always goes before destruction, haughtiness before a fall. And so when we keep it in perspective, this is not about us, this is about God. Everything we do is about Him. Everything He does, He does to bless us. Why? Because it is about Him, and it, it's, it, it's about Him who is love, Wanting to bless his people. Wanting to bless his children. 
wanting to have fellowship and relationship with a family. So his is the kingdom and his is the power. There is no power greater than his. And his is the glory. All glory belongs to him. And so Jesus taught them how to pray and to take those subjects as important, seven different aspects important in our walk and in our life and to pray those things and allow ourselves to be directed by the Holy Spirit as we pray. Now in Mark chapter 16, uh, 17 and 18, we see the signs of a believer. And it says, these signs will follow those who believe. It's not talking to those who have a ministry, not called to those that have been to college or been to seminary, but to those that believe, those that walk in faith. The context is those that get saved and then walk in that faith. So once we're saved, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And there's a certain amount of power that comes through that. And when we walk in that with faith, in His name, we can do certain things because it's under His grace, under His covering, and through His authority, not through our own. We submit ourselves to His name. In His name, He has the kingdom. He has the power. He gets the glory. So as disciples that walk out with faith, great signs will follow in His name. Everything we do, we do in His name. We do for His glory. He gets the credit. Now, one important aspect, I believe, of, of discipleship, and that is disciples don't just learn, but they do. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke wrote that he had written down about Jesus, the things which he both began to do and to teach. Jesus was a doer. And he taught his disciples to do. Not just to know, but to do. And as we walk in discipleship, into the things of the Spirit, we need to both do and teach. We need to both do and learn. We need to both set an example for others to follow and instruct. The goal is not just to know, but the goal is to go. 1 Corinthians 2.4, the Apostle Paul spoke to the church. He said, when I came, my speech and preaching were not with pervasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. Did he have words? Certainly he had plenty. He he was a tremendous teacher and instructor. But his words were not vain. They were not empty. They were not powerless. But there was life in his words. And he demonstrated the Spirit of God in power by his walk, by his life, by the things he did, as well as the things he spoke. Back again to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5 we find that the first result of that fall was separation from God. The second was self-consciousness. And the third was blame-shifting, which 
is actually lack of faith. Discipleship is the process of reversing the attributes of the fall in our Christian walk. To be with the Lord, to have him send us and then give authority to us is reversing that process in our lives. It's taking back authority over our own lives in the name of Jesus. Now, there are certain key points for understanding discipleship. The first one, I believe, is that we are discipled by men to be discipled to the Lord. As we progress from teacher to teacher, there should be order and closure at each juncture. This is not always the case, but this should be our goal. We learn. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, You might have 10,000 instructors in Christ. To learn from instructors in Christ is good. If we're going to set ourselves down under an instructor, a teacher, if there's an honorable understanding for a time to learn, that's going to bring blessings to both parties. As we move on, then there should be a blessing at the point of juncture, ascending. This is really the standard, biblically, of what we should see. Then there's a blessing. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we should sit down at one place and stay there forever. For very few is that the case. But yet, biblically, when we walk in love and learn of Him in love, at each point, we should go on with blessing. We should leave a blessing and receive a blessing. Matthew 10, 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, I believe in this verse, Jesus was describing relationships. A disciple is to a teacher. A teacher is to a disciple. A servant is to a master and a master is to a servant. Both of these are speaking about disciples and teachers, but in different aspects. A disciple is both like a student to a teacher and like an apprentice to a master. To understand those relationships is very important. While we may all be potentially in a position to lead and to disciple, we are not all doing it at the same time. When Paul spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2, he said, take the things which you've learned from me among many other witnesses. He could have said many other disciples. And then you take it and commit it to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So he was saying, look, you've sat along with others and you've learned. Now you turn around and you find others and you have them sit and you teach them with the whole idea that they will then turn around and they will teach others also. But there's got to be an order and an understanding. And if there is, there will be a growth in the apprentice and an impartation from the master. There will be a maturing of the disciple and there will be wisdom drawn out from the teacher. And then God's way in his kingdom will be honored, which is that both would be blessed. 
both would receive from what they need. And honor would be to whom honor is due. And blessing would be to whom blessing is due. And all of us would be supplying a need. In Luke 16, 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you what is your own? That is a biblical principle. This is a principle of God's kingdom. Doesn't always necessarily work in the world. It's not necessarily honored in the world. But in God's kingdom, it is honored. In God's kingdom, he honors this. If you're faithful with what is another man's, what is it speaking about? If you are given your assignment and sent out with it, and you're faithful with it, there's a time coming when you're going to be given your authority. Not just delegated for that particular sending, that particular duty, that particular job, but your own that you're going to have in order to give to others that you're going to be instructing, that you're going to be raising up. But you have got to be proven faithful. First with what is another's. That's wisdom on God's part. Because if you're being faithful with what is another's, you're going to be commended for it. On the other hand, if you're not faithful, it's going to be noticed. It's part of God's order in His kingdom to be faithful. Back in verse 10, it says, He who is faithful in what is least can be faithful also in that is which is much. Obviously, that therefore, then he who is unjust in what is least will be unjust in what is much. The point being that we may think we're ready for big things. Some, some may think, well, I'm ready for th this. This assignment you've given me is too small for me. Boy, I am ready to go out and raise the dead. I, I shouldn't have to vacuum carpets. <laughs> right? Give me something real to do. Let me preach Sunday morning. Let me go out and, uh, and pray for the sick. What do you mean put toilet paper in the bathroom? What do you mean greet people as they come in the door? If you can't be trusted in the little things... The Bible says clearly you cannot be trusted in the bigger things. So if you cannot be trusted, if that's what God says in his scripture, then you should not be trusted. <laughs> if we're going to be faithful to instruct and faithful to disciple, then we also have to be faithful to let people be faithful in the little things and prove themselves in the little things. Because what is our nature from Adam, from the fall? To shift the blame, not to take responsibility. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's. So we have to get control of that nature. We have to reckon the old man dead, and we do that in small things, in tiny increments. When we begin to take control of the small things, we find out it's the same process in our mind that then allows us to be in control of the larger things. But we can't ever be in charge of the bigger things. We may be deceived, we might think, but we never will. Generally, we only deceive ourselves because everybody else who knows us knows better. <laughs> but if we're faithful, 
and we'll be faithful with little things, then we can be trusted in the bigger things. How much time will it take? Well, that's where you come to trusting in God. How much time did it take before Moses could be trusted? 80 years he was, 80 years old when he was given his assignment. How, how many years did it take Joseph from the time he had his vision to the time he actually saw his brothers bow down before him? 21 years. And on that path, he had to be faithful in some little things. And if he went by the results, you wouldn't have thought he was prospering very well because each time he obeyed godly principles, he seemed to be punished for it. But it, because he was faithful, in the end, he was able to be given so much more than anyone else at the time was ever given. Because he was faithful in the things that were little, even, even during times when nobody watched. He could have given up. He could have said, it's taking too long. Nobody's noticing. I guess those visions won't come to pass, but still he was faithful. You know, sometimes the greatest promises take the greatest amount of preparation. I think his life is a good example of that. John the Baptist, 30 years in preparation for a six-month ministry. Now, if you're going to look for longevity, then John was not really a success. You might look for success in Annas, the high priest, he was the high priest when John was around. He was the high priest when Jesus was around. He was still the high priest when he was bringing James and Peter before him. So if you're going to look at success in light of the world, you might think Annas the high priest was successful and John wasn't so successful. But I'll tell you, in heaven, there's no greater man than John unless they're in the kingdom of God. Because there's different standards. And sometimes the preparation that we go through is just a symbol of how important the ministry that we're called to is. If you get premature success, chances are you've missed your calling. The potential for a great calling doesn't usually come that quickly. If it comes too quickly, it generally passes too quickly. If it's going to be great, it's worth great preparation. God is just as interested in the process as he is in the product. Sometimes we want to jump ahead to the product and we don't take the process as seriously as he does. But I'll guarantee you, whether you take it serious or not, God takes it very serious. Be faithful in the little things. Life is made up of a whole lot of little things. <laughs> when those little things get out of hand, that's when we start having big things happen to us. 1 Timothy 3.10 says, But let these first be tested, and let them serve as deacons, as servants in the church, being found blameless. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. What blameless means, though, is blameless. It means that when we make a mistake, we get up. We make recompense where we need to. We take responsibility where we need to. We forgive when we're trespassed against. 
We accept forgiveness when we need to accept it. We repent when we need to. In the little things, as we're given those assignments, we're tested. When we're tested and we pass those tests, we're proven. The word is approved. Then we're found blameless. Our perfection is in the Lord Jesus. But our blameless walk is our own choice to continually allow him to cleanse us in our daily walk. Discipleship is summed up with these words. I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I watch. A process of learning and growing and being released. And then to do it with others, to help others. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 The requirement to be a steward. It's a proven servant. One that can be left with the master's household. He's been proven. He's been faithful. He's been faithful in the little things, so he's been given much. How long will it take? As long as it takes. Some powerful truths that we need to know. A person cannot walk in faith who will not take responsibility for his or her actions. A big part of discipleship is just learning to take responsibility for your own actions. Learning to follow instructions. Learning to walk out on words even when you're not sure if you believe them. And then seeing the power of God manifested because God honors agreement. To an unsuccessful person, every reason is an excuse. For a successful person, there are no excuses. We're always going to be fighting the tendency to shift blame. It's part of our human nature. But the fight becomes less and less as we continually recognize it and refuse to give in to that tendency and to let our spirit have authority over our soulish tendencies. There's always going to be reasons. There are many reasons for Jesus' suffering. But Jesus never used a single one of them as an excuse to fall short. We have stumblings in our lives. We fall sometimes. There are always going to be reasons because there's always going to be things for us to overcome. There are many reasons beyond our control. There's a reason that there's sin in the world. I didn't cause it. You didn't cause it. Had I been Adam, I probably would have, but I wasn't. The point is, is there's a reason that there's sin in the world, but I can no longer use it as an excuse for sinning. If I want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, I give up my excuses. It's an interesting process of being discipled because it's a humbling process. Because when I succeed, I have to give glory to God. And when I fail, I have to take full credit for that. 
And that's called growing up in spirit. That's called growing up in the things of God. That's called maturing in grace. The older we get, the humbler we get. And part of it is because of that process. We really do give up our right to have excuses for failure. Are we going to fail? In a sense, we'll fall and we'll get up. Those will look like failures. But as long as we get up in God's kingdom, we have not failed. We are still in the game. We're still in the process. Once we give an excuse, then we have stopped the process. And we need to start again. We need to repent at that point. When we repent, we're back in the game. Those reasons have just only now become something more for us to overcome. And there are rewards for overcomers. As I've said before, my own little reminder is that no one is a failure until they blame someone else. You could say it, no one is a failure until they blame something else. There's always going to be reasons. If we want to mature, we choose not to make excuses. Every time we stumble, it's a chance to learn and grow and become stronger. A lot of discipleship rests upon this great truth. That if a person cannot keep their word, they will not be able to walk in faith. To the degree that a person keeps or fails to keep their word, the dimensions of their ability to walk by faith will be set. If we can't keep our word in the little things, if we're supposed to be somewhere at a certain time, and yet when we show up a little bit late, there's an excuse. Well, we know there's a reason, but is there an excuse? If we have an excuse for not having kept our word in a little thing, then how do we expect angels to go out on our prayers? How can we expect fire to come down from heaven at our command when God can't trust us with our word? If you won't take responsibility for your words, God is not going to take responsibility for them by giving you great authority to bring to pass tremendous spiritual events. But by proving ourselves, taking responsibility for the tiniest thing, we oversleep. Take responsibility for it. Ask the Lord's help for the next time. Is there a reason? Probably. Maybe the power went off. Maybe the battery went dead in the clock. Maybe you were just so tired because you stayed up late studying the Bible. The point is there's always going to be a reason. You choose whether or not there's excuses. If you choose that there are no excuses, then you're in a position where you are growing in the things of God. You are taking control of your own words. If you can begin someday to begin to believe your own words, you'll have faith in the things you speak. If you can't have faith in your own word, you won't have faith in God's word. When you begin to see yourself keeping your own word, then when you speak God's word, you will expect it to come to pass. 
Psalm 15, 4 says, He honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The word who is in italics, meaning that that word was added in the English. There's no corresponding word in the original. I'd like to read it to you from the NIV. Same sentence. Those who fear the Lord keeps his oath even when it hurts. I took out the who. Those who fear the Lord keeps his oath even when it hurts. If we fear God, we keep our word even when it hurts. Even when you got to get up and you don't feel like getting up. <laughs> even when you got to drive a long distance to go meet the person you promised and you ended up having to work late that day. But you keep your word even to your own hurt. Why? Not because you fear man, but because you fear God. And you trust God that if you keep your word, he will keep his word to you. He brings honor to those who keep their word. Now today, we see people breaking their word all the time. Well, they have a reason for doing that. Well, when they gave their word, they didn't realize it was going to be so costly or so inconvenient to keep their word. Or it was a long time ago when they gave their word. And after all, after this much time, you don't really expect me to bring my word to pass now, do you? I mean, I meant it when I said it, but that was a long time ago. That's the standard we see. That's not the standard we live by. He brings honor to those who keep their word, even to their own hurt. Because if you keep your word, even to your own hurt, God will kiss it and make it better. <laughs> because you're fearing the Lord. And it, that brings glory to His name. Isn't that wonderful? James 5.12 says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Make your words believable. When you speak, people should be able to trust you at your word. The reason we have to have so many documents and so many lawyers and things today is because even, even with the signature, you can still get out of it. But in God's kingdom, a word given is a word brought to pass. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. However, is it axiomatic that if one has faith that he will automatically please God? Of course not. Many people operate faith many times for the wrong thing. Faith needs to be mixed with obedience. Faith and obedience builds character. Faith and obedience exemplifies the character of Christ. Builds integrity in our lives. Faith alone will not automatically please God. Obedience without faith will not please God. That's just can be religion, going through the process. But when we have faith, and it's faith in God, we please Him. And He's a rewarder 
of those because they are seeking him diligently. Galatians 5, 6, 4, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith that works through love. In God's kingdom, it's faith working through love, energized by love. Everyone on earth operates faith at one level or another. The devil himself has to have faith to accomplish things. It's faith for evil. It's faith for destruction. Faith that works through love keeps us in the kingdom of God, keeps us in the blessings of God. Faith that works through love will bring his kingdom on earth. If we love, he says, we will obey his commandments. So faith through love brings obedience. The children of Israel consistently received judgment time and time again because they did not obey the word of the Lord. We need to hear and obey. Just to know it, just to hear it, is not enough. If we have faith working in love, then we will become an obedient person. We will become an obedient people. Disciples accept responsibility. First, for the little things in their own life, but also for things that are delegated to them. Responsibility is a response to our ability. It's a response to an ability. God is more interested in our availability than in our ability. If we'll show up and we'll uh, allow ourselves to be discipled by the Lord Jesus, he will teach us. He gives gifts. He gives abilities even. It's not great ability that makes great men. It's availability and submission that makes us into great men. Because it's more where we are and when we are called upon that makes greatness known in this world. If we'll have a response to the ability and show up and make ourselves available, God will raise us up. If we'll humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will raise us up. There are elements of discipleship. The first thing to understand is that the word disciple comes from the word discipline. A disciple is a disciplined one. He has put his hand to the plow, so to speak. He's shown up for work. He has chosen to bring himself to a place where he's willing to work. He has, in a sense, chosen a discipline. And while we may learn more than one, we have to come and learn at least one. And then we discipline ourselves to that discipline. Recently, I saw a quote when I visited Valley Forge in Pennsylvania where the 
Continental Army spent a winter in 1777, 78. They could have been wiped out almost at any time by their enemies or by the lack that they suffered. But they used that time wisely and they rather were disciplined into an army. And this came across this quote by an anonymous Connell soldier. It says, the army grows stronger every day and there is a spirit of discipline among the troops that is better than numbers. Christianity has rarely been in the majority. And even within Christianity, disciples, true disciples, have generally not been in the majority. And yet, it's been disciples of the Lord Jesus that have basically gone forward in God's kingdom, sent out on earth, that have expanded the kingdom around the world. It's been those that have chosen to be disciplined, learned their discipline, and gone out there's a spirit of discipline that's worth more than numbers. And in this day, it's going to be the disciples, the ones that are disciplined, that will accomplish more than might, accomplish more than numbers. In Matthew 28, again, in the Great Commission, he said in verse 20 that we should go out and we should teach them to observe all things that he has commanded us and he will be with us. Remember our father. Christianity is a together thing. It's not a do it alone, but a do it together. He wants us to teach Others to observe the things that he's given. In other words, teach obedience to what Jesus has taught. And then he will be with us. We need to understand that he will go with us. We can only be his disciples to the extent that we abide in his word. And we already know to abide is to obey. To obey continually requires discipline and to become disciplined requires commitment there's a difference in discipline between a warrior and a soldier a warrior has to do with zeal but a soldier has to do with discipline sometimes warriors accomplish things just through might but soldiers accomplish things many times through organization, coordination, and commitment, being sent at the proper place at the proper time, many times being able to, able to overcome much larger forces by discipline. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. We're to be soldiers, not just warriors, but soldiers, disciplined. 
we're to be enlisted. Now, just because we've become Christians does not mean we've enlisted in the army. We'll never receive commissionings of the Lord if we have not first enlisted or if we're not faithful to our training or if we've gone AWOL. <laughs> we're absent without leave, without permission. Much of the body of Christ has not ever been commissioned, although they've been called, because they've not shown up for their training. They've not been assigned their duty. They've not been given their discipline. So they've not been able to learn it. It's not that the Lord has not called them. He's enlisted us all. But we haven't all shown up. We haven't all said, here am I, send me. Now, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, And forgiveness is a requirement for discipleship. As we saw, Jesus began to teach on that immediately after sharing the Lord's Prayer, because it's that important. We have got to learn as soldiers to utilize the weapons that Jesus has given to us. They're not carnal weapons. They're not worldly weapons. They're supernatural weapons. Forgiveness being a great and powerful weapon that we are called to learn to use. If we'll learn to use forgiveness, just like the world uses anger, we'll begin to be promoted in His kingdom. There are other tools of our trade. There are other weapons in our arsenal. And as we learn to walk in them, we become disciplined in the things of the Spirit. As we learn what the weapons are and we become fluent with each one of those weapons, we become more powerful as a soldier in the kingdom. The more we're able to do with the weapons in this warfare, the more God is able to assign to us. If we're efficient with a weapon, as say forgiveness, we then are allowed of God to go and impart that training to others. If we've not learned it ourselves, He's not going to release us to train up others. But if we'll walk in that, we'll grow in that, we'll have the fruit of that, that fruit will then be able to be imparted. Those seeds will be able to be imparted unto others. And we will grow in great grace and many others will be discipled along with us.